Hi, I'm Jane Whitney. Welcome to the Common Ground Podcast. On every episode, we bring together diverse voices from across the nation to discuss the most pressing and controversial issues of our time, issues that make a difference in your life. On May 2nd, I was joined by a panel of the country's most trusted doctors to talk about the current state of the global pandemic and if and when we'll ever return to life as we knew it. If only we could flip a switch to end the curse of the coronavirus. Instead, even as we celebrate record numbers of Americans being vaccinated while cities and states reopen, new hotspots and variants are still erupting. And every time we turn a corner in the race against COVID, it feels like someone moves the finish line. Today, we'll ask four of the nation's most trusted doctors if and when we'll ever return to life as we knew it. Joining us are Dr. Michael Osterholm, Director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. Dr. Kavita Patel, former Obama Administration Policy Advisor, now at the Brookings Institution and in private practice. Dr. Anne Ramoyne, Professor of Epidemiology and Director of the Center for Global and Immigrant Health at UCLA. And the man who's been dubbed America's doctor, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and chief medical advisor to President Joe Biden, Dr. Anthony Fauci. We are so grateful to have all of you with us. Dr. Fauci, I am gonna start with you. We were inundated with um, all kinds of questions from viewers, and most of them turned out to be a variation on the same theme. Now, I know you say it's too early to declare victory over COVID at this point, But people want to know, when is this going to be over? When are we going to be able to return to life as we knew it? Well, you know, the the correct answer and the the truthful answer is that we're not entirely sure because there are so many moving targets and variables. The one thing that we do know is that if we get the overwhelming majority of the population vaccinated, you certainly are going to see a dramatic diminution in the number of cases you have per day. We had a major spike in the fall and winter, and then it came down and it did what it did in previous spikes. It plateaued at a certain level that was just too high to feel comfortable with. We were having about 60,000 new infections per day. And now it's starting to trickle down a bit. I mean, the the six day, the seven day average a couple of weeks ago was about 60,000. The seven-day average now per day is about 50,000 new infections per day. Hospitalizations are down, deaths are down, but we're still in a precarious zone. And that's what we all mean when we say it is too premature to declare victory because we have a number of variants that are circulating. The dominant variant in the country right now is the one that has been referred to as the UK variant. Fortunately for us, the vaccines that we're using, the two mRNA vaccines and the J&J, work very well against that. But there are other variants that we have now that are more problematic, even though they're not dominant. It will end, for sure. We know that. But let's hopefully it ends sooner rather than later and with less destruction that it's done right now. But people, people hear what they want to hear. And because there has been a lot of optimism, good news about the vaccine, good news about the infection rate dropping, uh, good news, the recent CDC guidelines where people who have been fully vaccinated can be without masks outdoors. People 
are so tired of this and so frustrated that people, let's say, who have been fully vaccinated, the minute they, they got the second shot and, and had the extra two weeks, they got rid of the mask. They, they basically were living like the vaccine works in every case. Now, how concerned are you about that causing a setback in terms well, of progress going forward? The thing the CDC is concerned about is what are you gonna be doing indoors, like in restaurants or bars and others, where there are a, a high level of community infection, namely the 50 to 60,000 new infections that I mentioned a moment ago, as well as the fact that when you're out in the community, particularly indoors, you don't know who's vaccinated or not vaccinated. You don't know who's infected or not infected. And that's the reason why, although we're going in the right direction for absolutely certain, you want to be careful that you don't throw caution to the wind and say, it's all over. We've declared victory. You still have to be careful until we get the level of infection to a much lower level than it is now. And we get the percentage of people vaccinated to a higher level than it is now. We've done very well. And we're seeing the elderly, particularly, of, are doing really quite well. We now have about 80 percent of people 65 years of age or older who have had at least one shot and about 65 to 70 percent of individuals who are 65 years of age or older who are fully vaccinated. And that's the reason why the hospitalizations and deaths in that particular group, which was clearly very vulnerable prior to the availability of the vaccines, things are greatly improving. So the bottom line is we are clearly going in the right direction but we're not there yet. And that's why all of us say, be careful and don't declare victory prematurely. Wanna talk about something that's thwarted progress in this country and that's polarization. From the get-go, there wasn't that feeling of mutuality that we were all in this together. There wasn't that same feeling um, that apparently happened during World War II where the collective felt that we should watch out for each other. People basically divided um, in terms of ideology. And we're now at a place where 20% of the country says they will not get the vaccine. Half of That includes half of Republican men, 20 million evangelicals. And the question then arises, to get to herd immunity, is it going to be possible if we don't convince some of those folks to get the shot? Well, the point that you were making about divisiveness, it really is a serious issue. I mean, at there's any time in society when you don't want to have the profound divisiveness that we have now is when you're dealing with a pandemic, because the pandemic doesn't know political ideology, doesn't take sides, doesn't know the difference between one state or another state. And that's one of the problems that we faced throughout, right from the very beginning, that we've had a great disparity in the kind of responses that we've seen. And when people don't want to take the vaccine, I mean, if they say, I don't really care, I'm a generally a, a healthy young person. So if I get infected, it's unlikely that I'm going to get a serious outcome, which is true. Statistically, that's true. But that's discounting the fact that as a member of society, if you don't care about whether or not you get infected and therefore you don't want to get a vaccine and you allow yourself to get infected, even though statistically you may not have a severe outcome, you are part of the propagation of the outbreak and you will likely inadvertently and innocently infect someone else 
who might infect someone else who might have a severe outcome, be hospitalized and even die. So there's two ways of looking at it. You gotta have your own personal responsibility to protect yourself, but you also need to have a societal responsibility of not being part of the problem, but being part of the solution. And that's a message we have to keep trying to get out to the people who don't wanna get vaccinated, to explain to them that we are in fact in this together. And the only way we're gonna get out of it is if we get out of it together. You have served seven presidents. You have spearheaded initiatives against uh, HIV AIDS, SARS, Ebola, Zika. And here we are in a culture war where masks are weaponized and um, social distancing is slammed as, as a loss of freedom. Again, I go back to the reality that can this number of people prevent us from reaching herd immunity? And I know you, you can't possibly know for sure, but your best guess at this point. You know, I think we better be careful when you talk about herd immunity. That's a very elusive concept, and it really varies with so many other aspects. For example, crowding, uh, differences in conditions, because we have a very large country and a very diverse country, and you may have herd immunity in one part of the country and not in the other. One of the wild cards about the number in herd immunity is that we don't know how long immunity lasts once you are infected, whether or not it lasts six months, eight months, a year, two or three years. So all of these things are moving targets, which is the reason why I prefer, instead of focusing on this mystical number that we don't even know what that number is. We should just focusing on get as many people vaccinated as quickly and as effectively as you possibly can. At this point, I do wanna show a clip that really illustrates what we're up against in terms of getting as many people vaccinated as we possibly can. I wanna show what happened at a recent congressional hearing when you mixed it up with Representative Jim Jordan from Ohio, and you had an exchange that really illustrates how deeply divided this country is. Let's have a look. My message, uh, Congressman Jordan, is to get as many people vaccinated as quickly as we possibly can to get the level of infection in this country low, that it is no longer a threat. That is when, and I believe when that happens, you will see- What determines when? I'm sorry. What, what measure? What, I mean, are, are we just gonna continue this forever? Or when does, when does, no. when do we get to the point? What measure, what standard, what objective uh, outcome do we have to reach before, before Americans get their liberty and freedoms back? You know, I, you're indicating liberty and freedom. I look at it as a public health measure to prevent people from dying and going to the hospital. You don't think Americans' liberties have been threatened the last year, Dr. Fauci? They've been assaulted. Their liberties have. I don't look at this as a liberty thing, Congressman Jordan. Well, that's obvious. As a public health thing. I have to ask you, what goes through your mind when you're embroiled in that sort of an exchange? Uh that he's playing before the cameras. That's what's going on in my mind. Some of the things he is saying in reality have merit, but the way he puts it by saying that several liberties are being encroached, this is a public health issue. In fact, it's in many respects a very serious public health challenge. 
And the point I was making about, he's talking about civil liberties, and I'm talking about the 570,000 people who have died already from this. So it, you know, it's, it's, I think it's self-evident. We're going to try and go through some of the questions that our viewers sent in when they, when they signed on for this broadcast. And right now we're actually going to kick that off with our very first video question. So let's have a look at that. I am Dr. Peter Jacoby, an emergency physician in Waterbury, Connecticut. Dr. Fauci, we all know that vaccinated people can get COVID, but whether symptomatic or asymptomatic, can they transmit this to others? And does this suggest we will be getting a booster shot every year? Well, there's two parts to that question, I think. The first part is that we know the primary endpoint for the vaccine trial was clinically apparent disease. As we're gaining more and more information, it's become clear that the likelihood of getting asymptomatic breakthrough infection when you're vaccinated is, is considerably less than getting asymptomatic infection if you're not vaccinated. And the level of virus in your nasopharynx if you get breakthrough asymptomatic infection if you're vaccinated is multiple fold less so even though we, the CDC recommendations are very conservative and cautious in saying that even though you are vaccinated, you should be wearing a mask when in you're under certain circumstances, not only to protect yourself from the variants, but to prevent you in case you happen to be subclinically infected and not know it from passing it on to others. That was the first part of that physician's question. The second part is about a booster. You know, you may need a booster. It's entirely conceivable that we may need to boost both to keep up the durability of the protection against the wild type virus, or if we have a number of variants that the original vaccine does not adequately protect you against, you may need to boost with a variant specific boost. So there are two reasons now for boosting durability of general protection and whether or not you have a problematic variant that you want to boost against. I have a couple of, of questions about children. First of all, when do you think that children will be eligible for the vaccine? Well, children from 12 to 15, probably very soon. Both Pfizer and Moderna and other companies are currently, as we speak now, are currently doing what's called age de-escalation studies namely testing children from 12 years old to nine, if that looks good, nine to six, if that looks good, six to two, and if that looks good, six months to two years. That will take several months to get enough data for safety and immunogenicity, which means that children of any age will likely be able to be vaccinated by the end of this calendar year and the beginning of the first quarter of 2022. And then just one other question about children, because about a dozen people asked this question. Why can children not play outside without masks? You know, again, it gets to the, the, the conservative nature of the CDC's recommendation, because if children are playing with other children outside without masks, you're talking about the intermingling of multiple households, many of which may not be fully vaccinated. That's different from children in a home with vaccinated people 
that they do not have to wear a mask. When you're out in the community interacting with people when you don't know the status of their vaccination, then obviously the risk is high. And for that reason, the CDC recommends that children who are interacting with other children and other families, when they're out there, they need to wear a mask. We're almost out of time with you. It's gone really quickly. But I have a couple of questions about things I've heard you say. For example, you talk a lot about how the truth is really important to you. Clearly, you're a person of integrity. You're a person of character. And how being true to yourself is really important. And yet you worked in an administration that basically marginalized you for not towing the company line, for, for lack of a better way to put it. Did you ever consider walking away? No, because I always told the truth and I never veered from that. I never compromised my integrity, but I felt that if I did walk away, that would leave somewhat of a vacuum there. You know, there were, I felt that if I did not be the person who spoke up when things were said that were not based on scientific evidence and scientific data, that things would be worse than they, than they were. I mean, I was referred to there, that's kind of funny, but it was true, as the skunk at the picnic. So I felt the balance of things would be to stick it out, even though I was marginalized for a while. You haven't had a day off, I think, in 14 months. You've been, you've been called a hero. You've been vilified by other people. You've become a celebrity. You have beer named after you. You're, you, you've, you know, you're totally in the limelight all the time. You and your family have gotten death threats. I mean, this is a very hard way to live. And I guess somebody wanted to know what your worst moment has been during this past 14 months. Uh, I, you know, I don't know if there was a worst moment. I mean, obviously, it isn't a single moment. It's the entire situation that troubles me, not only with regard to public health, but in general, just the condition of our country. The profound degree of divisiveness in our country is very troublesome. I know it certainly is very detrimental when you're dealing with a public health issue. I've had the opportunity to experience that firsthand. But it can't be good for a variety of other aspects of our life. And that's the thing that is very dark and, and really troubles me. So it isn't one specific thing. It's the entire situation of profound divisiveness that's got in the way from a public health standpoint of our all pulling together and realizing that the common enemy is the virus. The common enemy is not each other. Last question very quickly. When you were a kid in Brooklyn, you used to take your bicycle and deliver prescriptions from your father's pharmacy, it's my understanding. And that could have been the start of your public service career. I understand you also toyed with being a basketball player. The question I have is, are you hardwired to do what you're doing and to have been somebody who's always worried about other people's health? You know, that's been a, a sort of a theme in my family has been one of public ser service to others. My mother and father were that way. They were very uh, uninterested in uh, material things like making a lot of money, but it is more in what are you doing for society? What are you giving back to society? I think that kicked it off as a child. And then other aspects of my career through high school and college focused on that. That's one of the reasons why I went into medicine. 
And then from there, one of the reasons why I went into public health. Well, we're very grateful that you did, and we're very grateful that you've been able to spend this much time with you, and we thank you for everything you're doing for the country. Dr. Tony Fauci, you take care of yourself. Thank you very much. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to be with you and with my colleagues that will follow us. <laughs> thank you. I'm going to start actually with uh, Dr. Osterholm because you are a colleague of Dr. Fauci's. And um, you early on made headlines because you actually predicted the trajectory, the shocking trajectory of the first wave of the coronavirus a year ago, which earned you the nickname of Dr. Doom. And I guess at this point, I want to get your take on where you think we are right now in this pandemic. Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me on. And it's always good to be with my colleagues here. Actually, the title Dr. Doom goes back further than before the days of this pandemic. I had written about pandemics uh, in a book that I published in 2017, describing what might very well be an event here like this. I think the lack of creative imagination among many individuals in public health and in government in general uh, was one of the reasons why in the early days it was hard for people to envision uh, what was going to happen, both in terms of the total impact and for how long it might last. I recall on March 10th of a year ago, I was on the Joe Rogan podcast where I, at that point, uh, said I think there could easily be 480,000 deaths uh, by the time this thing is over with in the United States. And I think the negative feedback I got was much uh, greater from my own colleagues than it was from the public or anyone else, because no one really wanted to believe that this was going to happen. Uh, we are dealing with a coronavirus pandemic. We've never had one, as we know, in humans. Uh, the previous 11 in the past 250 years were influenza pandemics, for which we actually have a better understanding of what will happen after a year or two of those that virus uh, in, in a population. We're still really in an unknown situation with this coronavirus. I will say that, uh, as Tony pointed out, uh, I think we're in a much, much better place today. As you may recall, in the very earliest days of the Biden administration, the discussion was, could we possibly get 100 million doses out in the first 100 days of the administration? A lot of people were skeptical. Well, now you see we got 220 million doses out in the first 100 days of the administration. To them, I give great credit. I give credit to the manufacturers. And that has really had a very positive impact on what's happening here. But as we speak, these are the darkest days of the pandemic globally. Uh, it's getting much worse. Uh, we'll have 5.7 million cases reported for the last week. That number is going to go higher for next week. That uh, exceeds all the previous levels of, of activity we've seen. So, um, you know, we really have a tale of two cities, what's happening in a number of developed uh, or high-income countries and what's happening in the rest of the world. I do want to turn to Dr. Patel about what's going on, uh, the horrific things that are going on in India. But I want to ask you one last question, Dr. Osterholm. You had been concerned about a fourth surge. Have we dodged that bullet? Are we? Do you feel we're out of the woods at this point, that we're on a good path forward? Well, you know, this is the part where I think we need a great deal of humility um, and uh, to acknowledge we don't know. No one can explain to me yet why Michigan took off as it did in almost an isolation. Minnesota was close by that, but there are a number of states out there that uh, didn't see any sizable increases that were adjacent to Michigan or in that region. We have at least 14 states right now that have vaccine levels that are actually below that of Michigan when the uh, virus took off there. So we can't just say that vaccine by itself is going to take care of this. And so I don't know where we're at. I don't believe we'll see anywhere close to the big surge that we saw 
uh, in December and January. But I think a number of these states could still have substantial numbers of cases. Now, each day we get more vaccine out, the better that is. But as you're also hearing, we're beginning to see a major decrease in the number of people taking vaccines. We do have uh, substantial pockets of cases out there, particularly in the southern states right now, where we could see any one state have substantial activity for a period of time. Dr. Patel, we know that you're deeply involved in what's going on in India right now. What can you tell us about it? It's just watching the pic. It's 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 horrifying. It's horrifying. Yeah, Jane, and thanks for having me in this very esteemed panel. And and you're right. I think you can't kind of have any show of any of these pictures and not experience some sort of humanity internally and just sadness. And it's a cautionary tale for the United States. The prime minister of India just months ago had declared to the World Economic Forum that India had battled corona. And I want to just build off of Dr. Osterholm. He's right. When India did not have this surge, there were all sorts of hypotheses, some effect of the climate. Maybe it's because overall obesity levels are lower in, in India. And then look at exactly what we're seeing right now. And by the way, other countries who we would have said were doing a very good job, Japan and others, including Latin America countries, are having their own incredible surges. So globally, it brings up these issues about vaccinating the entire globe. And even if the entire United States, if 99.9% of the United States were able to be vaccinated, we can't rest until the entire world has that equity. It's just something I think as Americans we've never dealt with before. Well, I think a lot of Americans don't really understand. And I, I mean, they may be heartbroken watching the pictures, but they're not entirely sure why um, so it would affect their lives. And I think you've just um, given an explanation why. Dr. Ramoin, you work in Africa. You've worked in Africa for years. Are they looking at what's happening in India right now and holding their breath? What do you, what's going on there? Well, absolutely, Jane. And first of all, thank you for including me on this incredibly esteemed panel. I'm very honored. Uh, I, I can say as somebody who's been working in the Democratic Republic of Congo for the last 20 years, very closely with colleagues and monitoring the situation very closely, working on COVID studies in DRC, you know, it is something that we're very concerned about. Uh, the entire African continent, or continent is uh, has approximately the same population as India, but we don't have the same kind of robust health infrastructure relative to India. We also don't have the same kind of safety net in terms of economics that India does, nor does Africa in general have the ability to produce vaccines or to be able to distribute vaccines as carefully and closely. So we are very concerned. This could be devastating in Africa. And I just want to highlight what everybody else on this panel has said. You know, we are doing a great job here in the United States right now, but an infection anywhere is potentially an infection anywhere. I have always said this when talking about preventing pandemics before they start, but this pandemic has driven this home. And that's why we need to be very, very thoughtful about making sure that we get everybody vaccinated. Even though we've been living with this pandemic for over a year, people are really confused about the most elementary things. And so the question Patricia Dugan has is, she's been vaccinated. Could she con still contract the virus from somebody who has not been vaccinated? Dr. Ramoin. Well, I'm going to just reiterate what Dr. Fauci said, which is that the, the data suggests that people who are vaccinated have a much lower risk of contracting the virus uh, and spreading the virus because there is less virus 
um, in the nasal passage. However, there's no zero risk scenario here. And that's why we're still talking about when and how we need to be cautious. And for people who have been vaccinated, of course, activities uh, that, that with other vaccinated people are safer, but everybody has to start thinking about what their risk threshold is and what they're willing to do, who they are around, and what the potential is for if they get infected, who could they pass it on to as well? I'm going to have a question now for Dr. Patel, which is from Linda Dishy in Florida. And she wants to know, she got the vaccine and then fully vaccinated. Two months later, found, was tested that there were no antibodies. She had no antibodies present. Is she one of the folks, one of the millions who's considered to be immunosuppressed or compromised? It's more likely that the antibody test has been the antibody test we've been using in the past to see if someone has previously been infected. The blood test that Dr. Fauci was mentioning is different than the blood test that we use to see if you've been previously infected. So it's a lot more likely, Linda, that you're actually getting the wrong antibody test. I've seen this in almost every patient that has had the exact same situations. Dr. Osterholm, 60 years ago, they were dancing in the streets celebrating the polio vaccine. And now we're in America and one out of four people will not get the COVID vaccine. Want to talk a little bit about vaccine hesitancy and we're going to kick off that conversation with our next video question. Here it is. Hello, I'm Veronica from Quito, Ecuador. When I talk to my friends, they're skeptical about the vaccine because of what happened in Chile. After vaccinating over 40% of its population, the quickest of any country in the Americas, Chile went back to a severe lockdown due to a significant increase in COVID cases. Why did this happen and what is the U.S. doing to prevent this from happening? Well, this, actually, there's uh, several different angles with regard to that question that uh, are important. Number one, one has to look at the vaccine used in Chile and uh, just how effective that vaccine was and is. We're still having questions about that particular one. Second of all, as you've seen in the United States, and I just commented earlier, we can see areas where we have 40% of the population vaccinated, but because there are pockets, substantial numbers of people who associate together where the virus could be transmitted who are not vaccinated, that's why we can still continue to see sustained transmission. Now, again, as I've always pointed out, I don't think we're gonna see anything close to what we saw last uh, uh, late winter uh, with uh, the surge of December, January, but I think we're going to continue to see clusters of cases. Now, the only other challenge we would have here, and I just want to be really clear about this, is that this is one of the yet unanswered questions in this pandemic. Are there certain variants of the virus that may actually evade the immune protection from vaccine or from natural infection? And what I mean by evade, even to the potential where it just re, uh, reduces the likelihood of full protection, but still allows for uh, protection against serious disease, hospitalizations. And that's a big question we don't know yet. So we're all learning about that, but it's also one of the more re important reasons, while as much as from a humanitarian standpoint, we wanna take care of the world with this pandemic, we must vaccinate the world to reduce the likelihood of new variants developing with ongoing transmission in low and middle income countries that then could challenge the actual protection of our vaccines uh, or if, for that matter, even having previously had natural disease and develop immunity that way. But Dr. Ramoyne, there's so many people with so many reasons for not getting the vaccine, and I'm sure you've heard them all, but people have religious reasons. People think that they're healthy, they don't need to get it. 
people mistakenly think that the vaccine was developed with fetal tissue. There are all kinds of things you hear. How over the course of the last year have you dealt with this whole issue of vaccine hesitancy? We're running a study of vaccine hesitancy at UCLA where we're looking at first responders, health workers, um, essential workers, teachers, a variety of different populations, and really trying to get to the bottom of vaccine hesitancy. And what we find is that people have a, a series of concerns and they, they're kind of grouped into different categories. There are people who will never get vaccinated and they're skeptical of vaccines in general. But then there are a lot of people who are still trying to sort out all of the information that they're getting and not sure where to go for it. And so I think the more we understand about where people's hesitancies are coming from, and then we find ways to actually answer those questions and get people to the other side um, will be very helpful. Dr. Patel, I'll ask you the same question because you're, all of you, uh, I just want to make a point. We, you all are like the A-team as far as I'm concerned because you have made the last year bearable in many ways. Dr. Patel, I will ask you in terms of vaccine hesitancy, how you have dealt with that. Has there been a case where you just absolutely couldn't get through to somebody? You really tried and, and you couldn't convince them to get the shot? Yeah, I had 12 people in clinic the other day. So 12 young Latina women, all under the age of 25. Um, I, I was able to convert one to get vaccinated that day. And the other 11 had 11 different reasons. And just like Dr. Ramoyne said, I had to spend time. And I'm hopeful that on a next visit, they might be willing to get vaccinated. But it comes into, Jane, it, it comes like life in so many different kind of categories. Some of them have real concerns. And then some other women who have had misinformation through social media because of the public health messaging not breaking through, who are worried about any effects of these vaccines on their DNA, on their ability to get pregnant, on the health of their baby if they do get pregnant, and any potential for future genetic defects. So that takes a long time to kind of break down. And then the third is really a, a very interesting and I think going to be some of the hardest where they say, well, if I don't need to get vaccinated, then, you know, if everybody else is getting vaccinated, I don't need to get vaccinated and it's already getting safer. Why do I need to do it? And to that one, I had kind of the most, you know, visceral response of how do we communicate that it's not just about you, that you getting vaccinated can actually save people who you don't even know their names and faces. And that is not an easy concept, but this is just unprecedented. It's caught all of us off guard in a way to learn how to talk to people. And as the mass vaccination sites go down, Jane, and as it's less, you know, the supply outstrips the demand, we're going to have to really dig deep to have those conversations and not be judgmental. I, I even caught myself in moments kind of thinking, but don't you understand this prevents you from dying? Well, that's not resonating in, in all cases. So we're going to have to do a lot more to understand and to also use the psychology of what's happening. You know, getting vaccinated will be a way for society to get more normal. And you play a really critical role in that. Dr. Osterholm, I did a little reading about you in your hometown paper, the Star Tribune, and apparently you get a bum rap because you're called Dr. Doom. You're called Bad News Mike. I watch you on television, and frankly, sometimes I want to get out on a ledge because what you talk about is really depressing. The reality is, though, that you have tried to 
humanize this pandemic. You have talked about the fact that it is not a pandemic about a virus or just about a virus. It's about emotion. It's about pain. It's about loss. It's more than a medical journey. It's a personal journey. Is that coming out of your own experience? Well, first of all, I I think the issue of just trying to forecast where we're going with uh, something like a pandemic uh, by itself is fraught with lots of uh, potential potholes and in some cases, big sinkholes, uh, just because we don't know exactly where this is going. But at the same time, we can't keep just reacting or responding to yesterday's news and yesterday's events. So some of us have tried to get out there and actually suggest that case numbers would hit these incredible highs Uh, that people just didn't want to hear about. But it was necessary because one of the things we were trying to do through surges here in the United States was, if nothing else, at least have adequate healthcare delivery capacity. And if people didn't plan or think about that, it wasn't going to happen. I think the other thing is, is that one of the uh, uh, factors that is a bit of a surprise in a recent uh, piece of work by the New York Times, which I think was really quite remarkable, they actually were able to demonstrate that the excess deaths associated with uh, this pandemic, meaning deaths above and beyond what we'd expect for a given year's time period, actually exceeded proportionally in a large way even the 1918 swine flu uh, pandemic, which has always been held out as the greatest pandemic in modern times. I don't think people have understood the real impact of this disease yet and what it's done. Uh, So part for me was just trying to basically share that story and then also just try to also say, what can we do well? What is it? I mean, you know, I think right now there are many opportunities for people who have been vaccinated to really have a new approach to their lives. Uh, The fact that they can get together with family uh, that are likewise vaccinated, will soon have kids vaccinated, that I hope that every uh, couple or individuals who want to have a heck of a party who are vaccinated, go for it, have that party, but in your home, uh, not at a bar. Dr. Ramoyne, based on what Dr. Osterholm just said, I can hear people already making the party list up. Once people are vaccinated and they're fully vaccinated, a lot of people just feel like it's a spring break mentality, anything goes. Is there still some risk involved and how do you assess that risk? Well, that's a really good question. And, you know, as as an epidemiologist, I'm always thinking about risk. And so I might think about risk a little bit differently. And I think that we're all now trying to teach people how to think like epidemiologists and how to be able to really think about what risks you're taking and what your risk calculus is. Now, you know, of course, I think about this myself. I think about this for my family. What is acceptable risk at this point? You know, I'm vaccinated. My family is vaccinated. My 79-year-old mother is vaccinated. You know, is it okay for her to fly across the country and to, to, to be able to see her, the rest of her family? You know, I have to stop. I have to think about it for a minute and I have to think, okay, well, what are the risks? What are the potential outcomes here? What are the potential uh, difficulties that we could run into? Uh, and, And to be able to think, well, is the risk worth it? And there is no zero risk scenario here. I want to make that really clear. The risk is low for somebody who is vaccinated right now to be meeting with other people who are also vaccinated. It's very low risk. And you want to make that risk lower, do it outside. We're coming into the summer season into much warmer weather. 
know, if you want to be able to go visit family that you haven't visited and you are vaccinated, the risk is higher. You are getting onto a plane. You may be going to places that have higher rates of community transmission, but there are things that you can do to protect yourself. You can wear a mask. You can social distance. You can be very aware of your environments. And you have to always be willing to be able to stop and say, okay, well, is this a good idea? We know how people die with this. How are they going to live with it? I want to switch gears a little bit right now because one of the things we haven't talked about is that children have had have been impacted very severely by this pandemic in, in many, many ways. And we have a video question that goes to that right now, if you'd be so kind. Hi, my name is Jamie. I'm a high school nurse from Connecticut. In my field, we know that physical health and mental health are very intertwined. COVID has taken a tremendous toll on the mental health of our children and teenagers. They are stressed, they are depressed, they are falling behind in school, and they're making choices they wouldn't normally make. It seems to be harder on children and teenagers than it is on any of us. My question is, with no end to this pandemic in sight, how do we best support our children and teenagers so they're not falling behind even farther than they already are? Jamie's asking a question that I think every parent has going through their minds all the time. And I reflect on this often. I, so number one, I think there's no substitute for human context. We know that neural, by doing MRIs and studies of children of all ages, that when you have human interaction, even if you can't touch, but human contact, especially as Dr. Ramoyne said, outdoors and with a mask on, that can actually develop parts of your brain more so than just looking at screens. So number one, try to find ways to do that. That's easier said than done, Jane, but hopefully the warm weather will help that. Number two, I think we have to be incredibly serious about mental health. And I think Jamie as a school nurse is on the true front lines of this. But I just as a statistic, not all schools have school nurses. If you can have that discussion with your teen or child, ask them questions such as, tell me what makes you happy. Tell me about a time when you remember laughing. And it could have been that morning. And ask them, don't say, what did you do today? But try to say, give me an example of something that you miss that we're going to do when the virus is over. Something to look forward to. Something that kind of sparks joy in them. Do not hesitate. I've had too many deaths by suicide side of all ages, including an alarming number. There's been a lot of reports and anecdotes. We now have data from the American Academy of Pediatrics that supports that anxiety, depression, and mental health disorders are at an all-time high in all age groups, even as young, Jane, as two to four years old. So please, please, please reach out to your pediatrician, to a health professional, to someone that you trust. I will say this, that uh, I think Dr. Osterholm has said this himself, and I completely agree. We're going to be going through kind of a collective grief in our country. And the grief I have the most is that we decided we would open bars and restaurants and prioritize some of the places that are small businesses and very important, but we didn't put as much attention into how to keep our kids safe and potentially in-person learning. So I want Jamie and I want others to hear, I'm very hopeful that this fall, fall of 2021, even for children that don't have a vaccine, Jane, is going to be in-person learning and we're going to have the ability to keep our children safe. But to Dr. Ramoyne's point, it will not be zero risk. But I think that is something the benefits will outweigh the risks so that we can get kids back in school. And we're making progress there. Dr. Osterholm, the whole issue of mental health, we all know that the, the statistics on domestic violence, on substance abuse, on opioid deaths have all skyrocketed during this last year. 
Um, the collective grief that Dr. Patel just talked about, do you, do you think more will be done on the whole front of mental health going forward? Well, I, I would say there's a very simple answer. It has to be done. It's not a matter of if it can or should or wouldn't. It has to be done. Um, you know, it's, it's all the different component pieces of this pandemic. We have people who have lost loved ones, many loved ones, and they're not a number. Even though we talk about thousands and tens of thousands of deaths, these are each a person. They're somebody's father, mother, brother, sister, aunt, uncle, et cetera, colleagues. So we're still grieving that. Second of all, many of these deaths occurred in some ways in the most painful of ways. Patients were in intensive care units around the country where they were not allowed access to their own family. I can't tell you how many care providers I've had who said how absolutely horrible and, and, and really painful it was to have to hold an iPad up to someone's face as they laid there in bed dying so that their family outside the hospital could actually see that. Um, you know, it's terribly painful. Then you get into all the anger that comes around the partisan aspects of this. I had a, a historian from Civil War era uh, expertise say to me one day, he said, you know, with this COVID thing, I finally began to understand what mothers and fathers went through when half their sons went to fight for the North and half for the South. Uh, it has divided families in many, many areas of uh, political aspects, et cetera. And then finally, last but not least, the economic impact, as you've just heard from this discussion, has been dramatic. Many small business owners have suffered immeasurably. Uh, people who have had to worry about keeping a roof over their head, food for their families, and many of these were essential workers, they were so labeled, which has had a very disproportionate impact on the BIPOC community because they had to go to work. Many of us could sit home and use our computers at a distance location. And so when you start adding all of this up, it is absolutely a minefield of mental health challenges. So I, I think that, uh, you know, as much as we talk about building bridges and infrastructure today, we need a mental health uh, follow-up infrastructure that doesn't exist yet, but must in the days ahead. And that doesn't even include, Dr. Ramoyne, the healthcare community and the incredible toll, the incalculable toll that they have suffered during this pandemic over the last year. How would you even characterize what's happened to doctors and nurses and, and physician assistants and all the folks who work in that, in that area? How has this, well, it's crazy to say, how has it changed them? But, but how do you see this changing going forward in terms of the whole industry? Well, you know, our study on health workers and first responders includes a component on mental health. And we're really seeing that there is a, a significant toll of mental health um, on health workers and, and frontline uh, workers as well. But it's true for everybody. I mean, listen, what this, this pandemic has really unearthed for all of us in real stark detail is the importance importance of mental health and the toll that this kind of a, a situation can take on people, that the burnout is real and that people have felt very responsible. They've been right there on the front lines. They've not always had the kind of support that they've needed, not even the PPE needed at the very beginning of this pandemic. There are not enough health workers available to be able to do this kind of work. But that's also true, I will say, of the research community as well. You know, epidemiologists, public health professionals are feeling this kind of burnout as well. Even during the dark days of the pandemic, a group of California doctors took a, a page out of Lin-Manuel Miranda's playbook, Hamilton playbook, and they did their own version of the song, My Shot. And it went viral. 
and we have a sample of it for you right now. Let's take a look. in med college. I shouldn't brag that modern medicine can really astonish. Maladies like smallpox are being abolished. But out of nowhere comes a zoonotic virus for which we've no knowledge. It's a different kind of beast, a new type of threat. Every doctor dreads down, leaving more than a million dead. Eleven months along this pandemic disaster. These vacuville streets get colder with shoulder. Every burden, every disadvantage we've tried to manage, but without a way forward we're beaten down and damaged. The plan is to find a cure to change the game. In case you haven't noticed, let me spell out its name. It's the C-O-R-O-N-A-V-I-R-U-S. It's COVID-19. And there we are out of it. I want to thank, before we break away from it, Dr. Kevin Foe for helping us access that tape and Dr. Tony Berger and his group called the Vaccinate uh, for sharing that clip with us here today. And Dr. Patel, I guess that you will be part of the sequel. Maybe you will be part of the next group doing something like that. Yes? No? Yeah, that's right. Not not anywhere near as talented vocally, but absolutely the story will continue. Just just like we're all ready to go back and see Hamilton in person. I'll I'll try to get the next sequel out. I want to mention something, Dr. Patel, that I if I can get through this. I happen to be watching the night of the Biden memorial before he was inaugurated. It was the first time that there had been a real public recognition on a massive scale about the incredible loss in this country, about the grief in this country. And you were on the air with Nicole Wallace and you absolutely lost it. You broke down. And as Nicole said, it was almost like somebody had finally, after all this time of not talking about the loss and not talking about what it meant, like it had cracked us open. It had cracked us open and the emotions just just flowed. And I bring it up because I think that that's something that has also taken a back seat during this last year. You remember that moment? Uh, yes, Jane, I do. Um, I, I and, and trust me, it was uh, it was not what I intended to do. I tried just like I'm trying now to kind of, you know, especially in medicine, we're trained. I can't think of how many times I have been trained to kind of be as objective, you know, to not show emotion when delivering a diagnosis of cancer, when you're at the bedside and a family is grieving and trying to say goodbye to a loved one. I had gotten used to it. And there was something about that moment and watching those lights and hearing his words and hearing the vice president and the frontline workers that came and spoke. And it was just, you know, we all, I needed it. I think the country needed it. I, um, that night I talked to one of my best friends who was also kind of with me on COVID front lines. And, and, you know, I said, I didn't intend to do that on camera. I was a little embarrassed and she's like, we all needed it. And, and honestly, Jay, I'm here to say, I don't know when people and where they are, but we still need it. And I think it's okay that we're not okay. It's okay that I'm not okay, but I think we need to go even further and I do believe in kind of Americans coming together when we need to. That video, the, uh, the five of us being here together, I think that we need to reach out. 
I want people to do things that are uncharacteristic. And when those masks come off outdoors, make eye contact, try to actually get to know people. Some of that has been the joy of this pandemic, if you can say that. We've gotten to know our neighbors. We've gotten to know community members. We value our grocery store workers in a way we never would have thought. And I need that to go forward. But I also need for people to recognize that we're going to need to have these abilities to memorialize, not just to grieve what lives we've lost, but Jane, we've lost parts of us, even if we were lucky enough to be healthy and immunized, we've lost parts of us. And that is something that I'm going to struggle with. And I'll probably continue to do it um, publicly because I think it sends a message that it is okay. And candidly, I can't hide it. <laughs> so, you know, that's something that I, I feel very strongly. And I, I thank at that moment, um, Eddie Glaude and Nicole Wallace, who I couldn't have thought of two other people to, to publicly grieve with, but it was important for me and hopefully, hopefully resonated with some others. Resonated. It was one of the most memorable moments of the past year for me, which is why I brought it up. I didn't mean to embarrass you, although being real and being honest about how you're feeling is never a reason to apologize. It does bring up a question, and it's really sort of getting at the end of this show, the last question, uh, which comes from a viewer, Matilda John Pietro, who wants to know what positive has come out of this pandemic for you. And I think Dr. Patel has really started the answer to that question. Dr. Ramoyne, I'm gonna ask you, out of this entire year, what's been good? Through all of what we've seen happen here, we've identified some serious issues and we're going to be able to address them and life will be better. You know, until we understand the problems, we can't do something about it. And I feel like collectively as a country, we've started to identify some of the things that got us into such a difficult situation here, but also that are going to help us do better in the future. And I feel like that, that to have been part of that and to have been part of this discussion is, is an honor and a privilege. And, and I, I look forward to, to so many better things to come as a result of what we've had to go through collectively. Dr. Osterholm, I'm going to give you the last word. Out of this past year, what's been positive for you? Well, I think it. Um, there, there are a number of them. One in particular, um, I do a weekly podcast where I ask the listeners, uh, after talking a lot about science and public health, uh, to really connect on a more personal level and uh, have reached out for acts of kindness. And we have been overwhelmed with a number of acts of kindness that people conscientiously took upon themselves to do during this pandemic, things that they hadn't even thought they could do or would do. And the fact that they had a, a much, uh, I should say, more real appreciation of what it means to be kind and how we as individuals need each other. And I think that trying to humanize these numbers, I mean, as epidemiologists, we are so good at these big numbers. Uh, but at the same time, what does that mean in terms, as I said earlier, to somebody's mother or father, brother or sister, aunt or uncle? And so I, I've seen tremendous, uh, tremendous efforts in terms of kindness during this pandemic that I hope will continue and people actually have that as the next pandemic, as I talk about, is the pandemic of kindness that, uh, that we need to really support and emphasize. And on that note, I want to thank you all for being the A-team I knew you would be. And I want to thank you 
for your expertise, but even more, I think I wanna thank you today for your humanity. So you all take care. See, I'm already weeping and I'm not, <laughs> not even out of the show. Thank you for being just as thank wonderful you. as we knew you would be. Thank you. Good pleasure. Real pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. Until we see you back here next time for Common Ground, I'm Jane Whitney. Take care. I'm your host, Jane Whitney, with heartfelt thanks to you for joining us. Thanks as well to our distinguished guests for helping us to see a complex issue through a different lens as our hope of finding common ground goes on. For more information on this podcast, or to watch the broadcast version of Common Ground, visit ctpublic.org forward slash common ground.